I am Missy. I'm a compulsive over and under eater and a polemic. Um, I'm excited to be here. I'm also a little bit nervous. I haven't shared here in a long time. And this is a, it's a bigger meeting. And I remember being new in my recovery, coming to this room, and this was where people all seemed to know each other, and they'd been around for a while, and there was a lot of recovery. So it means a lot to me to be here. I came in um, March 26th of 2001, and um, I was wearing this uh, shawl thing. I wore leggings and the shawl, and it was a borrowed shawl from a friend who I was ducking because I wore it every day, and I didn't want to give it back. Um, I existed from the neck up, which, um, so I did makeup and hair, and from the neck down, I didn't look at myself, and I didn't, I didn't even consider myself. Like, it was just, it didn't exist. There was no connection. So, to stand up here in a room, like, where there's no podium, and, you know, uh, that is a big difference nearly 13 years later, because I don't think I would have been able to do that, even just to stand up and say I'm a newcomer, without, you know, that big, the thing was a blanket. I mean, um, it has been returned. Um, I came in these rooms. I had been, I had grown up, uh, I, I don't think I was a compulsive overeater as a little, little kid. I liked sugar cereals and everything, but for me, I, my obsession with food really started when my mom left when I was eight, and she... She I, she had been a single parent raising us from the time that I was like four, and then she moved away with a boyfriend to New York when she was eight years old, and we went to live with my father. And my mom was very lenient about food; we were allowed to do whatever we wanted. And my dad hated the way she fed us, and he was very strict. And um, he didn't really know what to do as a single father of two girls in the 70s. He was kind of a pioneer, um, and um, he was a bit of a narcissist, so there wasn't a lot of compassion for two little girls whose mom had left them. And he just thought being a father was being a provider, and he was perfect at that, and being a disciplinarian. And um, one of the things that he was very strict about was our food. So there was no more snacks, and you ate your vegetables, and you side the table. And for me, it was like I was just being parented in such a different way. And those standoffs with vegetables at the dinner table where kids sit there for hours, you know, for me, was about missing my mother. It, it, food really came to represent my mom. So my nose is running a bit. Um, and then... Uh, Later on, when my mom came back and I went to live with her, I remember coming home from school. Thank you. And uh, I, she was working, which she hadn't been a working mom when I was growing up. And uh, I remember coming home from school, and at this point, I'm now in, like, excuse me, the fifth grade or so, and I would draw the blinds. And I would open up the freezer and I'd go do this thing in the ice cream that we all just learned to do where we scoop underneath to, so that the level doesn't go down. And I would draw the blinds and I'd binge. And I, and I didn't have um, a physical consequence. I, I didn't gain weight as a kid. So I didn't really have to think about what I was doing. I knew it was weird. 
I knew that um, when I went to friends' houses, I was just in their cupboards and eating all of their food, and I knew that people thought that that was kind of weird and that I was way more excited about food than other people, but because there wasn't a physical consequence, it hadn't started to really be a problem in my life yet. It didn't take too much longer. Once I hit about 14, uh, I discovered laxatives and started abusing laxatives, and then I was drinking. I, my, my sister was a few years older than me, and so were her friends, and when we were all drinking one night, a friend of mine I felt sick, and a friend of mine taught me how to stick my finger down my throat and said, so do this whenever you feel sick when you've been drinking or if you eat french fries. It's like, okay. And this is now the early 80s, and the word bulimia was probably out there in more sophisticated parts of town than where I was. But, I mean, it was just funny. It was scarf and barf, and it was kind of a joke, and nobody took it very seriously. Um... And it just took over my life. I just remember being a teenager and being in my room, exercising for hours. And I didn't date. I never went to a prom. I never went to a homecoming. I had my first boyfriend at 29 years old. I was not having the teenage experience that other teenagers were having. And I had older stepsisters, and they had boyfriends. And I remember I would see them like, hurl themselves on their beds. Like, it looked like somebody had picked them up and thrown them across the room. They'd hurl themselves on the bed crying over their boyfriend or something that happened. And I was, you know, so numb from all these things. I was just like, wow, it's so weird. That is just so, you know, because I was just this, you know, I, I didn't really experience, I didn't physiologically mature the way that teenagers do when they're going through those, first stages of, you know, dating and rejection and the, the surges and the emotions. I get to do all of that stuff now. <laughs> I get to be a teenager dating now. Um, so uh, the bulimia was really intense in high school, a lot of isolating. I also discovered drugs. Uh, cocaine was pretty fun because... It helps with the anorexia. It was the only time I was successfully anorexic. Um, but that it wasn't, for whatever reason, that addiction didn't take on me. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, but it was, it was food and, and obsessing about my body and living in a dream world where there was this girl who sort of had my face, but it was much improved, and had this perfect body, and had this perfect boyfriend, and had this perfect life, and everybody loved her. And even if I was talking to you, most of me was in that dream world, constantly in a fantasy. And um, that, that became my life for a good part of my life, my 20s was spent that way. I really didn't do very much. I found these rooms uh, when I was 30, and uh, it was through a friend of mine who was an alcoholic. I had stopped purging on my own somehow, for the most part, and the laxatives I, I had stopped for the most part, and then um, when I was 29, somehow I found myself in a relationship. 
still don't know how that happened. It was kind of a miracle. And I went on vacation with this guy. And for me and for a lot of people that I know with this disease, going to the bathroom is its own drama, especially if you ever abused laxatives. So I was in a hotel room with this guy for a week, and he was there. So I was not going to go to the bathroom. And there was nothing I could do about that, even if I wanted to. I wasn't going to be able to go to the bathroom. So I had started taking laxatives again. Um, just like you know, if an alcoholic had stopped drinking on their own and one day had a cough and took some cough syrup and all of a sudden they were drinking and they didn't know what hit them, I didn't know what hit me. I took those laxatives because I needed to because I was in a situation where any normal person would need to take a laxative and I didn't know what hit me. That relationship ended pretty soon afterwards and I was in my apartment um, on AIM with a friend who was an alcoholic uh, just calling in sick to work, binging and purging, and I, I just didn't even know what hit me. And uh, she was sober. And it was funny, the only other association I had with anybody who was sober growing up, um, there was a lot of loose boundaries. The 70s hit my parents pretty hard. So I was the kid, <laughs> I was the kid who picked the pot seeds, and I could roll a great joint by the time I was 13. You know, there was... There was not a lot of boundaries, and um, my mom had a sober friend who was really appropriate, and who, who I don't know, I, I, would, I wish I could get a hold of her, I don't know if she saw that there was a little addict there or whatever, but she would make it a point to spend one-on-one -on -one time with me, and she was, in a, she was a safe grown-up for me to be around, and I really liked her, and she was sober, and AA was a huge part of her life. And so when this friend started talking about AA, I was just drawn to her. I felt very safe around her. And um, I had no idea that I was anything other than a, a pig who had no willpower. And the only character defect I had certainly was just that I didn't have enough willpower because it was very true for me that if I could have the willpower to eat the diet that would make me have the body, everything in my life would be perfect. The only problem in my life was that I just didn't look good enough to have the life that I really wanted. And certainly if I did, I would. And that was it. It was that black and white for me. I didn't come to OA happily when she told me there was a program for me. The name Overeaters Anonymous was a big turnoff for me. I was very embarrassed to have weight on my body don't want to go to a club called Overeaters. Like, that didn't sound cool. It, it just, I, I really, I, all those in favor of changing it to Eating Disorders Anonymous. Like, I, I just, it just didn't sound like a cool club. And I was like, I'm not going to tell people, you know, that I'm in this place. And now I tell anybody. I do not care about my anonym, anonymity whatsoever. I have no shame about being in these rooms. I'm very proud to be here and be one of you. Um, so I came in in the tent, and um, it was kind of like that blind melon video where the girl at the end is a bee and she discovers all these other bees. It was just, it was so mind-blowing to me that I wasn't just a lazy slob, that I had an addiction, and that it wasn't 
my fault and that there was this way to fix it and I would be okay and I you know I had these daydreams about 30 days having lost 10 pounds and making my speech and 60 having lost 11 you know I, I had a very different picture of how it was going to go because I was here and I was going to get the body and I was going to get the life and everything was going to be perfect and it turned out a little differently not to scare any newcomers um I, I learned that I have a lot more problems <laughs> than just a lack of willpower. And um, I can't believe that I'm grateful to know that. And that's kind of what's crazy um, about this program. I was reparented in here. I really feel like these rooms made me a woman and helped me grow up. And these steps. I can't say enough about the steps. Um, so my experience was, I'll, I'll quickly go into what happened in my life. I made friends, which was a really important part because for me, if something's not fun, I'm not going to do it. I'm just that kind of kid. So I, I made a lot of friends in here and did a lot of fellowship and took a little bit longer to get around to the steps, I, but I cannot preach the steps. I, I love these steps. These steps. I, my friend Nikki always says, we brush our hair to get our teeth clean in here. And what that means is that for some reason, I don't know why. When I write down, this is the plan of eating and this is the exercise plan and I'm committing this and I'm going to commit it to another person. The voice of food whispers and bugs me all day. Eat me, eat me. And what will be good tomorrow? We'll be good. That... It tortures me, but if I work the steps, if I write down who I resent and what they've done and what my part is and what the character defect is and pray about it, I don't care about the food. And I can notice, and I tell this story a lot, um, one of the first things that happened that I noticed in this program, I was... I, I came in here and thought, oh, my allergy food, what's the food that I have to abstain from? And I'm still the only person I know. I picked dairy it was because it was cheese and ice cream, like dope foods. Those are my foods that I just want to mainline. And so I ate vegan chocolate cake every day. <laughs> but I was abstinent. I had picked dairy, and I had made this commitment not to eat dairy, and I, you know, had three meals a day and two snacks. It was something that was very simple. So at the end of the day, I was like, okay, I've been abstinent. And I picked dairy. And um, I would go to the log cabin meetings, and then we'd go over to Earth. And one day, I wasn't able to finish the vegan chocolate cake at the place. And so I brought it home, you know, for 20 minutes later, when I'll go back in and finish it, which was miracle enough I couldn't finish it. And so one day, I was in my apartment, and I opened the refrigerator, and there it was, a forgotten piece of cake. And it really was a moment where I looked around. Like, <laughs> like does anybody... I forgot about a piece of chocolate cake in my refrigerator. I forgot about a piece of chocolate cake. Like, that was <laughs> a magic trick that had happened for me. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. Amazing food goes stale. Um, pieces have been left in the oven, you know. I mean, food 
it, not to say that it doesn't ever have moments where it just likes to whisper in my head and there's certain foods that I know are my emotions like popcorn. <laughs> that, even the sound of it, it's just like, I want to feel happier. <laughs> you know, there are certain foods that still, that still can call to me, but um, I can say the obsession was lifted for me for the most part um, on a daily basis I don't have that voice whisper to me and I've been through some rough stuff and it doesn't occur to me now that you know um, my father's very sick he's in hospice care and there's not a moment where I go oh well I can go have dessert and I remember I was here I came in March of 2001, and I remember September 11th, driving to a friend's house and driving past a donut store and seeing a line out the door at that donut store and thinking, wow, because I had about six months at that point, and I was just like, oh, wow, that would be me. That because no, diet's off today. Of course diet's off today. That would be me. It would be like anything that's that severe. It would be like, okay, diet's off. And now there isn't anything that goes on, my, on in my life where I go, oh, I can really eat. There are times that I'm looking more forward to food than other times. I actually had last night, like I had recently been disappointed by a boy that I'm a teenage girl dating. Because um, <laughs> I just didn't do it as a teen, so got to go through it. And um, the emotions are very dramatic. I don't curl myself into the bed, but I want to. Um, and, um, and last night, I was out to dinner with some friends, and I did find myself wanting to eat more and noticing it, knowing that I had to speak here this morning. And just remembering like and I wanted to keep eating like we were at an Italian restaurant it was good I wanted to just keep eating and um, it, not in a binge way not in a way that felt frightening or just in a reminder kind of way in a way that that I thought was appropriate for the night before I speak to possibly newcomers of, of what that's like to really have something happen that doesn't feel good and want food, my friend, to, to, to give me a hug on the inside. Because I am a comfort-seeking, pleasure-seeking person by nature. And um, through this program, I've learned that I can comfort myself by character building, which was not anything I ever wanted. And working these 12 steps, and I wish I had another hour to speak about these steps and about how I've worked them and about how they've changed me in so many ways and changed my relationships and made me a grown-up um, in so many ways that I never even wanted to be. But now that I am, I'm just so incredibly grateful to have this fellowship when I'm talking to people about a problem in their life people who aren't normies who don't have a program I feel bad for them that they don't have a program and I start I find myself starting to try and figure out well so were either of your parents alcoholic 
do you qualify? Can we get you in somewhere? Because like, I, I, I feel bad for them that they don't have a fellowship and, and these 12 steps that tell them how to handle all their stuff. So um, I think I'm wrapping up like a minute early, but uh, thank you so much for letting me be here and uh, for the reason. This is a time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and, that, and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself um, and then I'll repeat your question since it's being recorded so that people can hear it on the podcast. So is there anyone who has a question? Wow. How has your relationship with your parents changed and evolved as I found recovery? I came in these rooms hating my parents. I blamed them for everything that was wrong in my life and anything that was wrong with me, which was, you know, just their fault. Um, I was angry at my mom for leaving when I was little. And, uh, you know, she had since come around and she really wanted to be a mom to me. And I was just like, well, yeah, now that it's easy, you want to be a mom. But you didn't when I was little. And so I was hell-bent on punishing her by denying her me. And... um, after working my fourth step, you know, I realized, you know, I actually do still need a mom. Mm-hmm. And I was able to forgive her and see that she really was just trying to find another husband because that's what she thought she was supposed to do and, um, and let her be a mom. And my re- relationship with my dad is a full circle. Uh, I came in here. He was very strict about my looks. My dad, I looked just like him, and he really wanted a pretty daughter. I was just an extension of him. And he ridiculed me if I gained weight and was was very strict about my weight. And um, I had a lot of issues with my dad. And uh, through, through working the steps over the years, we I, I came to have a boundary with him where even when I lost weight, um, in his rooms, and you know, when he'd be like, "You look so good," I was just like, "You know, I, I, I let's let's not go there." And then, so I got to a point where that didn't even bother me. And now he actually he has Alzheimer's, and I'm legally his mom. I'm his guardian, so that relationship is full circle. And I feed him cookies. Right. Well, that's it right now. Um, let me paraphrase the question. So I, I think what you're asking me is to talk about how being a 40-something-year-old emotional teenager, <laughs> because I didn't do it when I was younger because I was using, how that fits in my life now and how I work that with my program. Um, that is very on topic with my life. So um, how that works for me now, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that as teens 
people in their teens and people in their 20s were learning to do and emotionally going through that I wasn't going through because I was in food and I was in a dream world. So in my 30s and now in my 40s, I'm doing them. Um, how I do it with program, it, it, becoming a friend, I learned a lot about how to be a friend and how to just be around other people in these rooms through fellowship and how to disagree and how to apologize and how to admit that I was wrong because that just never occurred to me to be something that you ever do. You don't show that you're hurt. You don't show that you're hurt. You don't show that you were wrong. Even when you're in that part of a fight, when you realize that you're wrong, you just still just like say stuff, you know, you win the debate. You don't ever lose. And then with dating, um, it, it took a little bit longer to get to the dating because I did come in here and expect to get to that body weight that I thought was acceptable to be seen at. And then I'd start dating. And the weight for me, the physical recovery happened slower. So I had to learn to show up no matter what. And that was just contrary action. It would just be me calling my sponsor going, I feel really sad. I don't want to go out. I don't want this guy to see me. And my sponsor or my fellow, whoever I was on the phone with, being like, yep, you go anyway. You show up anyway. And um, I've dated. People have seen me naked. I have been to... Uh, I've been to a pool in a bathing suit. You know, I do these things. And... I, none of them are easy. These are things that I have to push myself to go do. Um, but they become easier the more I practice them. And as far as the emotions go of, you know, learning to deal with rejection and disappointment and being excited and being scared and being vulnerable and things, it's just an everyday kind of really feeling the feelings experience um i hope that answered your question it, it's not it's not always that easy i rely on i call fellows a lot i have a core group and i call them and i share with them what's going on with me and and i just try and stay honest and i do a lot of writing um, when I come across a person who has relapsed a lot, what I'll usually tell them is that I have seen people who've relapsed a lot and they keep coming back and they eventually get it. I also will direct them towards a relapse meeting and to talk to fellows to really seek out people who have experience with recovery from relapse. I know it's a part of a lot of people's stories and it's its own set of guidelines to recover from. I don't have experience with recovery from relapse. Um, but I, I do, when I, when I'm, when I am just dealing with somebody who's recovering, I know for me, pardon my French, the fuck it voice is usually what can precede any kind of relapse for me is with smoking. I've relapsed with smoking many times. And it's usually the, uh, you know, what's the difference today? What's this little bit going to make a difference today? Um, and usually what will come before a fuck it voice is a period of restriction 
for me. Like there's been some sort of thing that I've told myself I'm not good enough for or I'm not enough for, so I've tried to be really, really good. And that there's usually sort of an arc to it. It's like I've tried to restrict, screw it, I'll be really good tomorrow. And that so if I'm just dealing with somebody who's dealing with relapse, I'll try and take them through and see if they're not somewhere on that arc and that's not what's going on. And then I will guide them towards talking to people who have recovery from relapse and recovery from relapse meetings. Right. And that can happen every once in a while. When I experience food obsession, what do I do now? And I'm grateful to say I don't have to white knuckle a lot, but there are absolutely times where, you know, the word popcorn, you know, or something, something is in my head. I work in production, so sometimes I'm around food all day, and it's long, and it's boring, and there's hours, and there's just all that stuff, and it bugs me. I... I have made a fellowship, like I need you people so much and I'm so grateful that I was able to connect with people who were willing to connect back with me. Um, I will either, if, if I can't talk, I'll text with my sponsor, I'll text with fellows and if I'm home at night, because um, night time's kind of a, a good time for that voice to wake up and be like, hi, remember me, let's hang out. Um, if I'm home and it's kind of late to call people or whatever and I'm going through it, writing will help. I, just writing, I have a file in my computer that's called God Box that my friends know if I die, they have to go in there and delete before my family gets there. They have a key. But um, I will just go in there and just... There's something about writing, and it's interesting. I'm working step eight now, and and it's actually in our OA 12 and 12 in the eighth step where it talks about that if we have something that we resent or feelings about something, we don't always need to write a formal fourth step. We can just write out what what we resent and why we resent it and just to see that there is a finite amount of feelings that we have about any given thing. But when it's just inside of us, it, or just inside of me, it feels infinite, especially if I'm ruminating and spinning on it. So if I write out what's going on with me, I run out of steam at a certain point, and I'll just get tired. And um, so I find writing helps a lot, and I really value those nights. I want to make a pitch for the nights when food is bugging me and it's harder. And um, I have an analogy. Um, the first 50 sit-ups in a workout routine aren't necessarily the ones that build all the muscles, but they're necessary. You have to do them. Uh, and that's how I feel about when food's easy, that's great, and it's necessary. But it's the ones where I have to dig in. It's, it's when you have to really work that muscle and it's harder that you build the muscle and you get stronger. So on those nights where food's really calling to me and food's really bugging me, I remember that the next day when I make it through, my program's going to be that much stronger. I love a good pink cloud. I love anything to be easy. But when it is harder, I do have that in my head. It's like, okay, I'm going to make it through tonight. I'm going to dig it. There's nine tools. I'm going to dig into as many of them as I can. And tomorrow I'm going to be that much stronger for having made it through when it's tough. So I actually kind of, I don't want one tonight, 
<laughs> I actually, but I actually do get a little happy, you know, when I when I have that night when it's hard. So it's just like that's right. I'm going to be that much stronger tomorrow. So embrace it. <laughs> My morning routine depends upon what I have to do. If I am working and I have to be somewhere real easy, I push snooze into the last possible minute, and then I get up and get ready, and I leave the house exactly the minute that I need to to get to that place 10 minutes early because I'm neurotically early. But um, so on those days, I will pray in the car as I'm driving, and I will meditate. I'll get to places early sometimes, and, um, and I'll sit and I'll meditate when I'm there. If I'm home, um, I'll kind of wake up. Actually, don't go right to prayer meditation. Like, I'll kind of have breakfast and hang out a bit. But then I will pray and do some writing and um, call my sponsor or a sponsee, depending upon what, make whatever calls I need to make. And uh, meditation, it, I didn't, I learned how to meditate outside, from an outside source, but meditation for the last <clears throat> two years, especially, has become such a huge part of my life and my program that I don't know how I went so long without doing it. Uh, before I had a formal meditation, I would just do a writing meditation where I would just write down everything and maybe do some guided one from the Internet. But meditation is a part of my daily life. And then I do pray before I go to bed. Sure. Um, step six and seven, for me, there's something... The other steps in this program, I love all the steps in this program, but there are some times that, like, step two can get a little confusing. I can debate it. You know, my brain, other steps can, all the steps I can kind of pick apart. For whatever reason, six and seven are super solid for me. And they've affected so much change in my life. Recently in my life, um... Uh, the first time I went through the steps, my six and seven are the character defect steps. Six is where we identify what defects we have, and seven is when we turn them over to a power greater than ourselves. Uh, the first time I worked the steps, there was a lot of people-pleasing and approval-seeking and attention-seeking, you know, all of the doormat steps. Those were the biggest step, Those were the biggest defects that were really causing a lot of trouble in my life. Now, 10 years later, you know, I, I go back through the steps because I feel like these 12 steps are 12 rows of a garden. That will nourish me my whole life if I continue to work the land. So I just continue to work those steps. Um, and this time now, my uh, self-righteous anger, because it felt so self-esteem, it felt so esteemable to have anger because I never really got angry before. If anybody was a jerk to me, it was just like, well, because I'm fat. And if I was thin, they'd respect me. And they wouldn't treat me that way. Like, anything that somebody did to me was kind of my fault because I was this fat loser. So um, it felt very esteemable. And I remember a sponsor years ago telling me, you have a lot of self-righteous anger. And being like, damn right. You know? and, and, and not being willing to work on it. So um, I, I recently, I just turned over my seventh step. I've recently gone back through the steps and I had... Uh, 
the self-righteous anger and vindictiveness. And um, for me, vindictiveness comes in the form of violently ignoring people. Because I have learned, I've learned that, you know, I don't want to say something mean to somebody. I'll, I'll have to make an amends for that. But I can lie to myself and tell myself, well, I'm not saying anything, so I'm not doing anything wrong while violently ignoring somebody and knowing that I'm really hurting them. And um, I don't get to lie to myself and tell myself that I'm not doing anything wrong anymore. So I've recently worked the steps on, you know, the, vindictive, the vindictiveness and uh, self-righteous anger and, and those kind of defects. And you heard me talk about my father. I, uh, I have an older sister who hasn't participated in helping out with taking care of my father in a way that I felt she should have. And it was very painful, uh, to say the least. <laughs> like, unbelievably painful. I think I spent the last few years having more daydreams about being on a panel, like a, on an Oprah Winfrey kind of stage, on a polygraph test with me and her, you know, so that everybody in my whole family could see what she wasn't doing and what she was lying about doing and what I was doing. I just, I wanted to be seen and I wanted her to be seen and she'd been lying like, I mean, she really went after me. She really tried to ostracize me from my family. It was bad. It was really bad and during a time that was so emotional and difficult anyway that... Even, I mean, even my fellows in here who are very objective when I come to them with resentments had to just concede, yeah, this person's crazy. <laughs> this, is, this is a dangerous person. And um, so I had worked with my sponsor on, you know, what kind of boundaries I was going to set with her and how I was going to take care of myself because I have a right to take care of myself. I don't get to be somebody's punching bag. And um, I was only going to text with her because, you know, things can be proven if they're in print and, and a lot of lies were being told and I wasn't going to pick up the phone and I wasn't going to, I didn't have to spend holidays and I didn't, you know, there was a lot of things, a lot of ways that I could take care of myself and so I'm doing step six and seven and my anger for her went away and it was really, it was over something really weird. I, um... I remember during 9-11, a random memory came up that during 9-11, when I saw talk show hosts on television acknowledging that as Americans, our hearts were broken and we'd really been hurt, feeling like it was so weird for them to admit on TV where the enemies could see us, the people who did this could see that we were hurt or to cry on TV. I thought it was really weird. I, and in my world, we would have just been like, this is the report. This is what has happened. We are going to get them. Our nukes are on their way. Because that, that's the environment that I was raised in. And for whatever reason, that came to me. And I was like, oh, my sister still lives there. For me now to admit that I'm hurt or that someone rejected me or that I was wrong, these things don't horrify me. It's not that big of a deal to me. But I was not raised in a home where that was safe. And my sister still doesn't live there. And I just somehow got compassion for her. And I didn't expect it. <laughs> it was like the cake in my refrigerator. It was like being able to. And one day I looked down and I don't 
Uh, yeah, this might make me upset. I looked down and my phone was ringing and she was calling. And I was home and I could pick up. And even though I'd worked it out with my sponsor that I didn't have to pick up for her, I did. And um, she had had a day where she went to call my dad. And um, she realized she couldn't and that she never could again. And she was really upset. And I had had that happen to me a, a few months earlier where I realized, well, I'll never call him again. I never get to. And um, I was able to comfort her and to be really loving and to realize whatever we're going through, you know, where we fight, we're losing the same dad in a really awful way. And I was so comforted by being able to comfort her and um, to be able to, to have, like I thought, defending myself and taking care of myself and having boundaries with people was like 10 out of 10 as far as the self-esteem meter goes. I didn't realize that forgiving somebody and being nice to somebody, even if they're an asshole to me, even if they've lied to me, even if they've tried to hurt me, even if they've been abusive to me, to be able to be loving and compassionate was an 11 on a self-esteem meter. I didn't want it. I didn't, it didn't occur to me. And it's like there's certain defects that when I work six and seven, the miracle of just seeing that defect go so quickly. I mean, this happened so quickly. And I talk to her on the phone all the time now. I'm, I'm quite, like, whatever she did, like, and there were, there were big lies. There were hurtful things done. I don't care. I'm grateful to have somebody who's going through losing the same dad as I'm losing with me. And I accept that comfort from her and I'm able to give it to her. I hope this is intelligible to whoever's listening. <laughs> oh, that's it. Okay, that is all the time. <laughs>